live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. You have been around the world since we last spoke. It's It's been New York and, and somewhere in Europe. Budapest, yeah. Budapest. All in the last uh, week. Yep. Was that business or, or pleasure? It depends how you define them. But in Budapest, I went to speak to the Kahila there. In New York, I went for a... Uh, the Kahila in Budapest? Yep, yep. Wow. In English? In English. And then in New York, I went for a, a wedding of uh, close friends. But Lovely. for 35 hours. Wow. Okay, so welcome back. There was fantastic feedback. We received a lot of emails and comments, questions as well in the last series where it was featuring Rabbi Tetz. And judging by its success, perhaps we'll feature other guests in the future. Yes. We're welcome to suggestions. So welcome back to a brand new series. This is going to be a two-part on Pesach. There's going to be a particular look at history and the Haggadah. So, yes, look at unusual Haggadahs, uh, forged, personal, but perhaps start with an interesting Seder or Sedorim. As mentioned, I was in New York last week and I picked up a history book on the Jews in America. And there were letters from soldiers in the United States who fought during the American Civil War in the 1860s who had run a Seder. Now, Jews fought on both sides of the Civil War, even religious Jews, uh, both with the Southern Confederates and the Northern Union. Um, So the the first letter shows uh, how communication was still given to some snags, I guess. It starts, Dear Leonora, he's writing to his sister, No doubt you were much surprised on receiving a letter from me dated the 21st, which was the first day of Pesach. We were all under the impression in the camp that the first day of Pesach was the 22nd. So, obviously, he didn't have a first night Seder. Um, Indeed, he goes on to write, Zeke, who's his brother, Captain Ezekiel Levy, was somewhat astonished on arriving in Charleston on Wednesday afternoon to learn that that very night was already the first day of Pesach. He bought goods sufficient to last us for the week, including matzahs and had himself transported back to our army camp. The cost of matzah, so that's clearly not just something that people complain about in the 21st century, is somewhat less than in Richmond, being $2 a pound. Although, as a footnote, matzah at that time in New York cost six cents a pound. So they are spending 30 times the price. So it was costing them a small fortune to keep Pesach. We are observing the festival in a truly orthodox style. No news on the war at present. Troops from Florida are passing over the road en route for Richmond, although he would go on to participate in a number of battles. The second letter from the Union side is a little more amusing. I enlisted from Cleveland in the Union cause to sustain intact the government of the United States. It's a very patriotic and became attached to the 23rd Regiment in West Virginia. 
being apprised of the approaching feast of Passover, 20 of my co-religionists belonging to the regiment united in a request to our commanding officer for a relief from duty in order that we may keep the holy days. As the paymaster had lately visited the regiment, he had left us plenty of greenbacks, in other words, plenty of money. Um, our next business was to find someone suitable to buy our requirements. The morning of Erev Pesach, a supply train arrived in the camp, and to our delight, there were seven barrels of matzahs. <laughs> Interesting with packing them, either way. <laughs> On opening them, we were surprised and pleased to find enclosed two Haggadahs and prayer books. We obtained two kegs of cider, a lamb, several chickens, and some eggs. Moreover, we couldn't obtain, but we found a weed whose bitterness, I apprehend, exceeded anything our forefathers enjoyed. The necessaries for the chorutsus, we couldn't obtain, so we got a brick. Not to digest, but to remind us by looking at it for what purpose it was intended. So very resourceful. At dark, we commenced the service. The ceremonies were passing off very nicely until we arrived at the part where the bitter herb was to be taken. We all ate a large portion of the herb when horrors ensued. The herb was very bitter and very fiery, like cayenne pepper, and excited our thirst to such a degree that we forgot the law authorising us to drink only four cups, and the consequence was that all the cider was drank. <laughs> Those that took too much of it became excited. One thought he was Moses, another Aaron, and one had the audacity to call himself Pharaoh. The consequence was a skirmish with nobody hurt, only Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh had to be carried to the camp and left to sleep things off. This slight incident did not take away our appetite, and after doing justice to our lamb, chicken, and eggs, we resumed the second portion of the service without anything occurring worthy of note. Are you sure you didn't just uh, pick up a joke book there? <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is... Very skillful writer. Yeah, he was writing to the Jewish Messenger, which was a newspaper in the States. Oh. There is actually one other association between Pesach and the Civil War, because on the night of the fifth day of Pesach in 1865, Abraham Lincoln was shot and died in the early morning of April 15th. That day had actually already been scheduled as a national day of prayer to mark the end of the Civil War, and Jews across the country were gathering in shawls to give thanks. And when news of Lincoln's death arrived, the uh, beamer in the shawls were draped in black, and instead of uh, Pesach Tfilis, they said Piyutim from Yom Kippur. So that mm -hmm. was on Pesach in 1865. On to Haggadahs. So going somewhat back in time, I wanted to mention a particular handwritten illuminated Haggadah. The Haggadah appears as a separate book rather than as part of a Siddur from 1280 onwards. Shortly afterwards, they start creating very elaborate illustrated Haggadahs long, obviously, before the era of printing. And there are some very famous ones. They all have a specific title, which is either 
relates to their place of origin, like the Barcelona Haggadah or the Darmstadt Haggadah. Sometimes it relates to design, the Golden Haggadah, the Sister Haggadah, or to where they are currently held. You have the Rylands Haggadah in Manchester, the Cincinnati Haggadah. Sometimes it's known by the owner, Kaufman Haggadah, Makata Haggadah. So they all have a particular title. And one famous Haggadah is, or perhaps was, called the Bird's Head Haggadah, which was written around 1320, and it's so named because birds' heads replace human faces throughout the Haggadah. Now, no one quite knows what pushed the illustrator to do so. Uh, It's probably based on the prohibition of drawing the image of a human being. But all adult Jewish males have a beard and a Jewish hat, as well as a bird's face, right? Mm. Um, Children are bareheaded, as is the image of Yosef as the ruler over Egypt. And non-Jews are there with blank circles instead of faces. So you can tell the difference between the two very obviously, very immediately. Now, in the scene of the Egyptians pursuing the Jews immediately after coming out of Egypt, the pursuers are therefore all faceless. But there are two figures with birds' heads, meaning that they are Jewish, amongst the people pursuing the Jews. And it is suggested that these two are Dasan and Aviram, since they have uh, whips in their hands, which may relate to their role as Jewish taskmasters. What is the background of the Sagada? What's, what's the history there? So it has quite an interesting 20th century history rather than a history as to how it survived. We are not quite sure where and when it got to safer shores from the time it was written. Obviously, it had to survive 600 years of uh, European occupation in order to make it to uh, Eretz Israel. But it is the 20th century Uh, which stands out because it was bought by the Israel Museum for $600 in 1946, which is obviously very little, from a German Jewish refugee called Herbert Kahn. 70 years later, in 2016, the heirs of the family that had owned the Haggadah before the war asked for compensation. They said that the Haggadah had been sold without permission, and um, no one knows exactly how much they asked for, but it was uh, understood or rumoured to be uh, a few million dollars, which would still be substantially less than its actual value. And they asked the manuscript to be renamed the Murrum Haggadah because that was their family name. Now, the museum considers itself a caretaker of any heirless Judaica that was once owned by Holocaust victims. So they acknowledged that the family had owned it at some stage pre-World War II, but they wanted documentation for the period between 1933 and 1946 or 45, which obviously was difficult to come by. But the Murrum family uh, managed to get hold of more than a thousand documents which show that Khan was a low-paid schoolteacher. And what the family said was that 
he somehow obtained the Haggadah in 1939 after the head of the Murram family was deported. They don't believe that he stole it. More likely that the book ended up in a Jewish school in Germany where Khan was teaching, where it was placed in a library to avoid it being confiscated by the Nazis. And subsequently, the museum did settle with the family and they still hold that Haggadah in Yerushalayim. But there are two features of note in the Haggadah. The first is it contains a drawing of a man pointing to his wife when he declares, this is the bitter herb. In other words, <laughs> she's the morrow. See why it's so valuable now. <laughs> it's actually not the first Haggadah with this in. There is a Haggadah called the Chilek and Bilik Haggadah, which is nowadays in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And there, both spouses point at each other uh, when the husband picks up the morrow. And there is a, a dialogue with speech bubbles. And each spouse makes the accusation that the other is the real morrow. So oh. uh, that's quite interesting. And then there is the hunting scene. It is reproduced in many Haggadahs, but it really only belongs in those that were aimed at a, a Yiddish or German-speaking audience, because it is the hunt of the hares, which is called Jagenhaz. And that is a reminder of the mnemonic Yaknahaz, which is the order of making Kiddush on a Seder night, which occurs on Motza Shabbos, as the second Seder night will this year, of Yain, Kiddush, Ner, Havdalah, and Zman, Shechianu. So Yaknahaz is the equivalent of this Yagenhaz. And in fact, in the British Library, there is an old illustrated Haggadah where the hunt for the hare appears on the same page as Havdalah. Why do you think there was so much comedy put into these Haggadahs? Do you think it's just to keep the children awake or to make them more alive? Yes, what they are doing is they are making sure that the Haggadah is read with interest. Hmm. Uh, because I don't know that the kids would necessarily have come anywhere close to uh, what would have been, even at the time, a very valuable manuscript, but uh, for the family. Then there is a Haggadah with an English twist, one of the oldest, in fact, the 12th century. It's past, part of an Ashkenazi Siddha, which is in the Corpus Christi College in Oxford. And uh, Rabbi Brackman writes that it is handwritten on parchment, which obviously would have been very expensive. But there's no record in the manuscript of the date that it was created. Although on the last page, there's a list of debts to... English bishops and other people, and a number of these people, a number of these debtors, lived in England during the reign of either Richard I or John, which uh, means somewhere between 1189 and 1216. And since one of the debtors mentioned died in 1202, obviously the manuscript has to have been written by then or earlier than then. And the interesting thing is that there are a couple of differences between this, uh, so to speak, English Haggadah and what we do nowadays. Firstly, most Ashkenazi communities make a bracha over each one of the four cups of wine, whereas most Svardim only make two brachas for the first and the third cup. This Haggadah does neither. 
it instructs us to make the bracha after three of the cups of wine, numbers one, three, and four. And this is actually an An Ashkenazi opinion. It's the view of both the Raviyah and the Machzavitri. It's just not what Ashkenazim do nowadays. And I guess I refer listeners to the podcast on Ashkenazi identity as to uh, why that might have been the uh, case. They, they know it all by heart. Right. Okay. So it appears that early English minhag was just these three brachas. And then there's another difference in Shvecha which is said just after benching, just as we pour the fourth cup of wine. So the, you know, literally pour out your wrath on the Jews, on the non-Jews rather, who refuse to acknowledge God. And the standard version is four verses, two from Tehillim, two from Echa, although the earlier Siddha of Rapsadigon only has two Psukim. In this Ashkenazi Siddha, there are 11 and they elaborate on this vein of God, so to speak, taking revenge on those that refuse to acknowledge him. And the possible reason for the difference in length may well have to do with the date of the manuscript, meaning that a pre-Crusade 10th century Jewish world, when the Siddha of Sadigon was written, was a very different place to the 13th century, where there were times of you know, great distress, mostly due to the impact of the Crusades on Jewish life and the regulations against the Jews from the Third Lateran Council. So that might account for why there was more uh, hope and even prayer for an end, um, but that it should come at the expense of those who were the sworn enemies of the Jew and of God. Wow. So these were the handwritten ancient Haggadahs. When did the printing start? Do we have records? Printing, the first printed Haggadah that we have was made in Spain prior to the expulsion in 1482. And there is only one copy of it left. It's in the uh, Jewish National Library in Jerusalem. And obviously a second copy would be worth millions. Although having said that, in 1988, another copy did appear on the market. This is over 500 years after that first one was originally printed. And two Judaica dealers were offered leaves, pages from it, and they paid $60,000. But a friend in the business, in the trade, told them that he'd also been offered leaves from a similar Haggadah, so they become quite suspicious. You know, two Haggadahs turning up when there is only one in existence and within a short time. So the dealer, a guy called Aaron Berger, took the book to Yerushalayim for authentication, and experts there told him that the purchase was a fake. But surely before they paid $60,000 for it, they, they checked that it was old paper. So the paper was authentic 15th century. Uh, the writing was not, and I guess that was harder to distinguish. In fact, it was neither of these that uh, uh, tripped up the forgers. It was the fact that the copy was so perfect of the existing one that it was too perfect. And what gave it away was that the wormholes 
In other words, the holes that bookworms had made over the past 500 years were in exactly the same places yeah. in these new Haggadahs being offered for sale, you know, and the likelihood that they had eaten through exactly the same amount of the exact same page was, uh, to put it mildly, quite unlikely. Amateurs. Well, the seller was an unusual guy. His name was Frank Pod. He had been a priest in Italy and converted to Judaism. And he and his brother-in-law had sort of uh, dressed in a way so as to not appear Jewish and therefore uh, as if, you know, that they had something that they had no idea of the value. And uh, that's how they, they passed it off. And they were arrested in March of 1988 and they faced up to 20 years in prison and a fine of up to a million dollars. What, it was so stringent, so strict? I guess forgery of um, ancient uh, pieces, of older pieces, and uh, there was uh, wire fraud. There were various different mm. counts that uh, they were being accused of, and they pleaded guilty. Oh. Where is the fake now? Because that, that's quite a story behind that itself. Right. So, as I say, he created two, or at least two, but I think he created two. I don't actually know because at least one of the fake copies was actually sold at an auction, um, as a fake, obviously, but sold in auction because it was still written on 15th century paper and it did very much resemble the original. So, you know, I'm not quite sure where it is. I wanted to add a more contemporary story about Pesach, which I came across this one concerning Rodov Beresh Wiedenfeld, known generally as the Trebina Rov, who was a Rov in pre-World War II Poland when the Nazis invaded. So the Trebina Rov's picture, along with those of the Rebbers of Ger and Bells, appeared in the anti-Semitic Nazi tabloid Stürmer, and his caption read, the world's greatest Talmudist, but this was not a positive that they were noting, and he was being hunted by the Nazis. So he fled to Lvov, or Lemberg as it was then known, and unfortunately much of what he wrote before the war, nine out of ten volumes of his responsa were lost, and he was subsequently deported to Siberia by the Soviets to uh, Forest 45 in Sverdlovsk. Now, when he got to Siberia, he was exempted from actual slave labor, so, you know, chopping down trees to a quota, because of his advanced age. He was already in his, I think, mid-60s. But he was still, obviously, victim to the terrible conditions of deprivation, uh, deprivation of food, and the extreme cold. Now, he was careful to make sure that the Soviets didn't find out that he was a rabbi because they were all considered parasites by the USSR. And he spent his days learning from memory. He was a genius. He would learn through Talmud, Shulchan Aruch, and he would record his chidushim on scraps of cement bags and occasionally on pieces of wood, many of which were somehow smuggled out of Siberia at one stage. And he had one sefer with him. It was a copy of Nefesh Hachaim, which is a philosophical important work on the learning of Torah. And he would uh, learn it 
again and again. And one of the non-Jewish prisoners said, how often can you read the same book? Uh, because, you know, if you just read it, you know how it ends. And he also uh, taught young children the Aleph base because their parents were away at work. And he became a focal point for Jews in the area. They turned him for guidance, especially in areas of Kashrus. And there's one very evocative letter that he wrote, which we still have the original of, a letter to a prisoner in a nearby camp in Hebrew, responding as to how to kasher their utensils for Pesach. And there's also an answer to the question of two people who only have between them a small amount of matzah, one kazayas. Should one person eat it to fulfill the mitzvah, or should both taste it even though neither will carry out the biblical commandment? And he is inclined to opt for the one person over two. He brings sort of various proofs. He also writes instructions for baking matzahs where they had factories with heat. But just to understand who he was, one story, I think, illustrates this. He would occasionally receive extra food from Jews, from prisoners, and he divided this food up with others. Now, in the 1950s, when by then he'd already reached Yerushalayim, he was one of the noted halachic authorities in Israel, a student of his, Rabbi Menachem Goldberg, tells how he saw a non-religious Jew turn up outside the Trebinarov's house, put on a kippah, and walk inside for what turned out to be an extended period of time. So his curiosity is very much aroused, and he asks the Jew what the reason for the visit had been. And the Jew answers, you think you know Rabbi Wiedenfeld, and I can assure you that you don't. I was in Siberia with my wife and children. We suffered, like everyone else, from a lack of food. One day, I discovered two potatoes outside my door. I was sure they'd been dropped by someone. But when night came and they were unclaimed, I brought them in and we feasted that night. This happened again a few days later and continued at sporadic times for weeks. Now, you might think it was a great act of kindness. But in Siberia, this wasn't kindness. It was almost lunacy to share food. And we eventually discovered that it was Trebinarov doing it. So, therefore, I say nobody who wasn't in Siberia can even vaguely appreciate what I'm telling you, and therefore you don't know him. Wow. When did he arrive in Israel? He got there literally just before Pesach in 1946, after seven years of exile, and he, you know, he realized the losses he had sustained, uh, brother, sisters, daughters, sons. He wouldn't speak about the past because he felt it was his duty to rebuild Torah, and over the week of Pesach, he met the leading Torah scholars in Eretz Yisrael, the Briskarov, the Ponovitcherov, the Belzareba, Rabbi Salajolti, and that gave him the ability to continue and to, uh, to build. Wow. So, finally, the very first Haggadah to contain a commentary, the earliest art scroll, except this one was authored in 1496 and printed in 1505 by someone quite famous, Don Yitzchok Abarbanel. 
Now, he lived a very stormy life, as many know. He served as finance minister both to the King of Portugal and then subsequently to the King of Spain. In 1483, he was forced to flee Portugal and leave everything behind. And then, nine years later, in 1492, he fled Spain. And once again, he was forced to leave everything behind. In 1495, when he's in by then in Italy, in Naples, he has to flee after a pogrom against the Jewish community there, um, which nearly wiped out all the Jews, and he travels to Corfu. He comes back to mainland Italy in 1496, and somehow he finds not just the time, but the ability to write. And in many ways, it was a very personal Haggadah, produced at a weary age of 58, which he called Zevach Pesach. And the commentary is a reaction to his suffering. In the introduction, he reflects on the pain uh, that he and so many Jews had recently gone through. And he recalls the better times, the happier Pesach celebrations uh, in Portugal and in Spain when he was able to sit at a table with his wife and children. And he therefore describes the Inquisition and the expulsion in very uh, Churban-type terminology. It's not that appropriate for Pesach, surely, when we're sort of celebrating the freedom. and. Okay, so it's a good point. And he actually mentions that because, first of all, his goal in writing the commentary, is to say that despite the great suffering, we need to focus on the fact that God will fulfill his promises, just as he did in Mitzrayim in Egypt. Um, and he sharpens the question you've just asked in the opening paragraph of Magid. The Abarbanel asks, why are we grateful that we are no longer in Egypt when it's very possible that the situation we are now in is worse. So, you know, how can someone who's currently in exile, he writes, feel as though he has left Egypt when for all meaningful purposes he is still in exile? And he answers with the three phases towards the beginning of Magid, just after the Manishtana. He says, Kulonu Chachomim, we are now wise enough to see how unique our relationship with God is in all generations. That's one thing. We understand that the status that coming out of Egypt and the original settlement in Eretz Israel gave us is ongoing. We realize how much receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai as the sequel to coming out of Egypt transformed us. And he then says, how do we experience Pesach in exile? If you are alive under any conditions and able to hold a Seder and tell the story, you are an example of a miracle. And he adds that every individual's survival in the Spanish exile is because of hidden miracles from God. And this is from somebody who knows, who had everything and was forced to become a refugee 
numerous times, so it's perhaps a message to those from the Ukraine who are experiencing very difficult times at the moment, that this should give them, you know, this commentary speaks to them. And ultimately, he promotes a positive outlook and the fact that redemption will occur for us. Wow. I mean, even the text of Maggit, we say, right. we recount the, the many times throughout history that right. we still, and yet, there will be a final redemption. Right, but we are talking in theory, and he and is he giving voice it. to the pain that he and many others went through. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed, Rabbi Hirsch, and we will see you, I suppose, next week on Cholamoid for a for round two of... Uh, yes. Pesach. So I wish you a wonderful Yontav and wish all our listeners wonderful Yontav. Hope this added a bit of uh, richness to the Seder. And when you open that Goda to appreciate, maybe there won't be any bird heads, but. Uh, all people pointing out their spouses and <laughs> calling them Mora. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that will happen this year. Um, so thank you very much. And as usual, any comments, feedback can be emailed to podcast at jaylee.org.uk. Thank you. Good Yontav. <laughs>